السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلس بی اپون آن آل اوور لسنرز ویلکم ونس اگین ٹو این ادر ڈرائیو ٹائم شو یو آر لسننگ مصاف انیق الرحمان ان وائس فرام وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو ان لنڈن آئی ہیو جوائنڈ بائی ڈاکٹر طارق باجوا ہی از ود می ان دا اسٹوڈیو آئی ویلکم ہیم ایز ویل تھینک یو ویری مچ السلام Uh, today, uh, <clears throat> we will be discussing uh, two very important topics, uh, which is, one is related uh, with the interfaith, uh, you know, how many, this world interfaith, uh, world interfaith harmony week uh, as we are going, to, uh, going uh, from and from 1st February to 7th February. Every year, the world interfaith harmony week is celebrated or observed. We'll be discussing this topic in further in the second hour of this show from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. We'll be discussing uh, the topic of hijab, the modesty is my crown. And very, you know, important topic uh, living especially in these countries and for the Muslim women that what is hijab and why they have to observe hijab and are they forced to do hijab. So basically we'll be discussing this topic uh, in detail. In the first hour, as I mentioned, we'll be going through Uh, and discussing the interfaith harmony, uh, tolerance, respect and peace. For this, uh, <clears throat> we will be having some guests as well who will be discussing this topic and giving us insight of uh, this important topic. We'll be, uh, you know, listening uh, to uh, you as well. If you would like to join us over the phone, you can join us from, uh, you can call us on 0208-687-7878. Uh, so as you can tweet at uh, Voice of Islam uh, UK. You can also follow us on Instagram page and you can call here, as I mentioned earlier, to, you know, uh, discuss or, you know, share your views on this uh, on this Interfaith Harmony Week. <coughs> you know, the fir- World Interfaith Harmony Week, as I mentioned, is observed every year in the first week of February from 1st February to 7th February. And the World Faith Harmony Week was first proposed at the UN General Assembly on September 23, 2010 by H.M. King Abdullah II of Jordan. And the goal of the week-long celebration is to promote harmony between citizens of the world regardless of their faith. And it's very important, especially living in this day and age, we have to come together, we have to discuss the interfaith harmony and you know, find out the ways that how we can love, uh, how, can, how we can live in this uh, world, uh, you know, peacefully and uh, understand the faith of each other and respect each other as well and, you know, show some tolerance and that's how we can create peace. And the celebration, especially if we discuss this, is based on the works of the Common World, world uh, Initiative. The initiative got Muslims and Christian leaders to discuss the two common fundamental religious teachings, love of God and love of the neighbor. This mantra teaches everyone goodwill and the power of kindness, charity and healing. And Worth Interfaith uh, Harmony Week also highlights the philanthropic works of religious groups. It encourages others to do similar work or get more involved in their communities. I would also like to request Dr. Tariq Baj if he would like to say anything specifically uh, on this particular topic. Well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted mm-hmm. by the United Nations on December 10, 1948, embodies the broadest consensus of tempor- <coughs> contemporary civilization on the subject of 
human rights. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights defines religious conversion as the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief. Uh, this is Article 18. And it adds that no one shall be subject to caution which would impair his freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice. That's Article 18.2. Islam is a holistic religion and it emphasizes our duties and obligations so that each of us, by due um, discharge of them, should help to safeguard freedom, justice, and equality for all and should promote and foster human welfare and prosperity in all walks of life. So uh, there is clearly, obviously, we turn to the Holy Quran when we, we were talking about Islam, and Islam, uh, obviously, the, all the teachings of the Holy Quran, uh, are, they represent Islam, and that is what Islam is, what, whatever the Holy Quran teaches us. And the Holy Quran declares faith to be a matter of the heart, and that it is up to every individual to choose his own belief. The Holy Quran says there should be no compulsion in religion. Surely, right has become distinct from wrong. This uh, is a, a verse from chapter 2, verse 257. Islam does not permit coercion as an instrument for the spread of the message. Allah reminds the Holy Prophet, peace of, and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, and uh, I quote this verse, admonish. Therefore, for thou art but an admonisher, thou hast no authority to compel. This is verse 22 to 23 from chapter 88. The holy prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is further reminded, but if they turn away, we have not sent thee as a guardian over them. Um, thy duty is only to convey the message, and that is a verse 49 from chapter 42. On another occasion, the Holy Quran says, O Messenger, and say to the people that Islam is the truth from your Lord. Wherefore, let him who will believe and let him who will disbelieve. That's verse 30 from chapter 12. So it clearly indicates that there is no compulsion in the religion uh, according to Islam. And uh, there is also a hadith quoted uh, which has been related by Jabir ibn Abdullah. And he reported, it was said, O Messenger of Allah, which deed is the best? The Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Patience and tolerance. It was said, Who among the believers has the best faith? The Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Those with the best character. So this has been taken from Musannaf ibn Abi Shaba. So clearly the Islamic teachings according to the Holy Quran as well mm -hmm. as the, the practice of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Obviously he was the first addressee uh, of the teachings of Islam uh, and he, his practice shows us that he acted upon the advice True. Uh, and he propagated whatever you know he learned from the Holy Quran and his practice is, is a witness to that. Thank you, Dr. Tariq Bajwa. And uh, as we were discussing before, that we will be having some guests uh, within our show. Uh, we have our first guest with us, uh, Dr. James Holt. I welcome him in the show. He's Associate Professor of Religious Education at University of Chester. 
Hi, Dr. James. Thank you very much for joining us Good today. Afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Uh, to start off, uh, you know, how important is religious education for young people to help create a peaceful and harmonious society? Well, that's really interesting because there's two different types of religious education, isn't there? And both are incredibly important. The first is that which takes place within the home, and that is incredibly important in setting morals and values and all of those things. But then the religious education I teach for, for my day job mm-hmm. is um, within schools. And that's really important for a number of reasons. We, we teach children to understand other people in terms of what religious people believe and how that impacts on their daily lives, so the lived reality of religion. And a lot of prejudice is, is caused through ignorance or through fear. And so if we help children understand, I guess, what we could term the other, and that they can understand why people of um, religion or perhaps of no religion act the way that they do or do the things that they do and understand kind of the motivations behind living a religious life. And it's, it's, it's really important because as children grow up, um, then they can respond and they can react against prejudice as we give children an accurate understanding of what religions and worldviews actually believe and teach. And so although it's not its primary purpose within the school curriculum, it's a, it's a good kind of um offshoot of what actually happens within school that children become more understanding they become less prejudiced hopefully and they can begin to work harmoniously with other people indeed um you know in your opinion how important is to uh, celebrate peace and harmony week uh, during this day and age that's a really interesting question because obviously there are um, days and there are weeks of various different things that we celebrate. So um, we have this week and it's great and it reminds us all um, that we should be involved in seeking peace both in our own lives and in our relationships with others and throughout the world. But at the same time, one week out of 52 is not sufficient. It is something that we should be seeking every day of our lives as we seek to work with those people around us as we seek to be members of society, we have to be working for peace and harmony, not just this week, but maybe it's a stimulus, maybe it's a springboard um, for us to live in a more peaceful and a harmonious way throughout the coming weeks and months and years. Um, so it's great and it's wonderful and it's certainly needed because I think today society can be seen to be more divided than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anything that tries to promote peace and harmony is wonderful but I would say it's not just for today or this week, it's forever that we need to be developing those um, kind of attitudes and responses towards others. True, yes, it's everyday work we have to do, isn't it? Uh, you know, how mm. relevant is religion in today's society? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, at the end of um, last year, there was some census data released from the 2021 England and Wales census. And it suggested in the headlines were that Britain is no longer a Christian nation and religion is on the decline and non-religion is on the increase. So we now have 37% of people who identify as non-religious. But that still means that over 60% of people in today's society are religious. And as we look at that, then religion will influence the way that they live their lives. So I look at the way that I live my life and it is heavily influenced, if not completely influenced by my religion and and the beliefs that I hold. And Mm. so I wouldn't be the person I was without it. And so as we look at individuals, then religion is incredibly relevant. 
I think as a society, I think perhaps um, governments and, and statutory bodies don't particularly talk about religion as much as they should, and perhaps it's, uh, it's not become a hiss and a byword, but it's become something perhaps we don't talk about in public life. And so I think that is something that perhaps needs addressing, and we need to be able to um, share our religion and, and, and share how that has influenced our lives and the positive aspects that that brings to us. But I think in an individual level, it's incredibly important. On a societal level, I don't think we talk about it, but I do think it has incredible relevance today. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. James, when we discuss about, you know, nowadays and the society or the youngsters especially, of course you are a professor of religious education. What do you think the religion influence, uh, you know, leave impact on on youth's heart, that they really feel that there is a religion and we have to follow? I mean, that will vary according to youth. Mm. I think there is, to some extent, um, I think the prophet Amos talked about how there would be a famine mm. uh, of hearing the word of the Lord in, in the last days. And so you could look at that and think, well, there is a, if we have an increasing um, non-religious population, and some mm. data that was released earlier this week suggests that um, younger people are less religious mm. than their older counterparts. But I think that places a responsibility on parents. I think it places a responsibility on society mm-hmm. to help um, youth and young people understand where to um, find that guidance and help and the value that religion can bring. Because often all we see in the newspapers is the negative aspects mm-hmm. that religion brings. True. And actually, there's a huge amount of positives that are out there that I think um, as religious persons, so this is me as a religious person rather than as a professor of religion saying, but I think parents and faith leaders can step up and actually help people. So I have four children and I have taught them all of their lives the importance of faith mm. um, and the importance of, of um, a relationship with God. And so I think it's it's kind of my generation's responsibility to help the young people understand those kind of things. Indeed. Um, you know, what is the key to achieve long-lasting peace and harmony, in your opinion? Oh, goodness, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, uh, if, if we could answer that, then, then job would be a good one, wouldn't it, really? Yeah. But I think, I think the most important thing is personal relationships. Mm-hmm. I think if we have peace in our own lives, and so we don't have um, a tumultuous heart and, and, and kind of going from here to there, but we actually have harmony in our interpersonal relationships, that we're positive, that we build relationships, that we seek to um, build understanding rather than, and, and, and I guess the term is build bridges rather than, than build walls. And I think we can develop peace and harmony in our immediate relationships. And as we build those relationships, then I think it, it just happens naturally that society becomes more, peaceful and harmonious. There's a, uh, there's a philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas who talks about how if we have um, the world in discourse is no longer what it is in separation. So if we're talking, if, and if we're working together and we're being positive and we're taking an interest in people, then I think that will naturally spill over into the larger society because we care more. I think we've got to a place where the other person, whoever that might be, is faceless. And so we feel as though online or in government policy that we can actually be quite negative and call people names and and denigrate people. But actually, if we know people and take time to understand them, 
then we'll be positive, then we will have harmonious relationships. And that's very idealistic. But I'm mm-hmm. just trying to think of what I can do personally, because I'm just one person who, who lives in the UK. But it's, if I can make all of my relationships as harmonious and as kind and peaceful as I can, then hopefully that will extend and, and our spheres of influence will do that. And it will hopefully knock on to um, our nation's leaders and our world's leaders who, for some reason, some of them seem to want to um, kind of sow division and sow discord when actually, while the world is perhaps more divided than it's ever been, there are lots of things that draw us together and help us um, recognize the value of other people and how we can best work together. Uh, indeed. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Dr. James, uh, I had just one question in my mind that, you know, you because you are in into religious education, what do you think uh, the, the concept people, you know, the younger generation, they have the concept about the religion that um, there is a propaganda about the religion that the religion is the one which divides and makes people fight with each other. So what is your experience uh, dealing with, with the younger people? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because over my career, I've taught children of all ages and now I teach adults in schools who are training to be um, religious education teachers. And I think my experience has been that they are fed a diet that suggests the negative aspects mm-hmm. of religion. And the voices that we hear in the newspapers or on the television are always when things have gone wrong or they are the people who are spewing things that are hateful. And you don't really read or learn about the positive aspects. And so, therefore, it becomes incumbent on people of faith who to speak up and to, and to share the positive impact that religion has and to share those things. So um, I know within my own faith community and in the Ahmadiyya faith community, there is a lot of work done in outreach. And so helping people who are less fortunate, perhaps who are homeless or have fallen on hard times. And somehow that doesn't always get reported. And it's not that we have to shout it from the housetops or the rooftops, but it's the fact that people need to recognize that faith leads us to positive things. And so we need to counter the narrative that is there, because often children will come into school with a narrative that they have, which is that they have heard this about such a religion or they hear this. And it's like, well, the way to combat that is through education, but is also through the breaking down of barriers so children can speak with people of faith and can understand the great impact that faith can have on the way that they live their lives and also on wider society as a whole as well. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's uh, that's a <laughs> very correctly well said, and uh, <clears throat> I I think it's it's important that people also, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that our leaders they need to understand as well because they are <coughs> just for their vested interests. They are creating um, differences and uh, uh, bringing pieces people to to the verge of war. So thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. It was a pleasure talking to you and um, uh, yep. giving insight into it. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So that was uh, Dr. James Holt, who is Associate Professor of Religious Education at the University of Chester. And uh, he has spoken from his point of view as he's teaching younger people uh, about the religion and about the 
uh, how it is related to peace and harmony. And he mentioned that he he has taught his own children um, the aspect that the religion teaches us um, to, to bring peace to the world. Because if a religion brings inner peace to an individual, it can also bring peace to the society and bring harmony um, amongst the faith. And, uh, and that's a very important, of course. As regards Islam is concerned, you know, uh, the first and foremost, Islam teaches us, and it is among the six articles of faith, in, uh, is uh, to believe in all the prophets. And one cannot be a Muslim unless they accept and revere figures like Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and also Krishna and Buddha, uh, on uh, whom all of them be uh, peace uh, who are believed to be among the 124,000 messengers uh, who have been appointed by God Almighty. The Holy Quran says, This messenger of ours believe in, believes in that which has been revealed to him from his Lord, and so do the believers. All of them believe in Allah and, and in his angels and in his books and in his messengers, saying, we make no distinction between any of his messengers. That's verse 286 from chapter 2. Uh, Dr. Tariq Bajo, once I was discussing this uh, topic and somebody <coughs> came to me, how is it possible that you are Muslim and you're believing all the religion, all the prophets, and then yet there are differences? So <laughs> there's a very interesting topic. And I answered, basically, that's what the Holy Quran says, that God has mentioned what was written in a right way in their books and God has already mentioned the Holy Quran these are the teachings which are right and basically God Almighty himself has mentioned all those verses all those uh, incidents how it occurred and what are the, what is the truth and it's been revealed in the Holy Quran and that's how we basically when we look at the prophets we know all the prophets were you know they had a pure heart they were from God Almighty they didn't do any sin as you know sometimes Bible mentioned in other uh, scriptures you know mentioned regarding the prophets so God Almighty himself has mentioned that who they were how they lived their life and uh, you know when we basically uh, believe on them we believe them through the Holy Quran that who they were and there's no, we don't, you know, consider those books because whatever is mentioned in the Bible or any other scripture, there's been changed by the time. But what was, you know, the truth God has mentioned in the Holy Quran, that's how we believe on them. Yeah, the only thing is that the, the, those people, those prophets, they came mm. for a, for a limited, True. for limited people, limited, you know, whatever their, their nation yes. was, they were meant for that, not for universal. Them, yes, universal that's right, so yes. their teaching was obviously for those people mm. and it changed with time. As it became universal, obviously, it has incorporated all the previous teachings and it has come in the best form in the form of uh, Islam and the form of the Holy Quran. Uh, now uh, we have another guest with us, um, Ansa Nargis. Uh, she's the president of Ahmadiyya Women's Auxiliary Organization, Ecuador. I welcome her in the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, Ansa Nargis. Waalaikum salam, rahmatullah, for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and uh, we'll start off with the very first question. Uh, you know, as a Muslim woman living uh, in a country uh, where majority of people are Roman Catholics, what efforts do you make to promote interfaith harmony in society? Um, yes, one of the ways that I think 
we as Ahmadi Muslims, not just here in Ecuador, but anywhere hmm. around the world, we promote interfaith harmony is through interfaith dialogue. The holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be on him, was a great advocate for interfaith dialogue. So what we do here is also hold interfaith symposiums in which we try to focus on what brings all of us different religions together. We try to find common ground. We share our Islamic perspective, and we also love to hear about the perspective of the other faith communities as well. Um, interfaith symposiums are a really powerful tool for bringing all of us together because they allow us to, they allow people to see that religions at their core teach peace and aim to bring harmony in the world. Um, and to uh, for furthering uh, this interfaith dialogue, what we also do is we regu regularly visit churches and temples and places of worship of other faiths because we believe this really allows us to build bridges and friendships with them. Um, a few months ago here in Quito, we visited a Mormon temple that was recently inaugurated. Uh, we presented them with a copy of the Holy Quran and with Spanish translation, and we also got the chance to get a tour of their temple. It was a really nice experience. Um, besides that, we've also managed to build a really good connection with the Hindu community of Quito. We've had some great interfaith dialogue with them in the past, and we've built a good friendship with them. Um, and besides that, we, we've had a, a bishop of the Evangelical Church here in Quito visit Joseph Salana, UK, in 2019. And he has also had the honor of meeting Beloved Hazur, and he absolutely loved the experience. So this connection has really strengthened our bond together. And we do all this because, of course, Islam encourages us to befriend our neighbors. It's a really crucial and an important part of our faith. Um, because when we do this interfaith dialogue with other people, it really allows us to listen patiently to the perspective of others without imposing our own. And also, if we don't reach out to different communities, we would kind of just sit in our ignorance of them. So there's something that makes us curious about the practices of other religious people and their communities. So it's best to reach out to them respectfully and aim to learn about it and ask some questions. Uh, indeed, you know, as you were mentioning, uh, regardless if ever it's women auxiliary organization or uh, you know the youth organization, everybody is doing the same thing, and they have you know on every level and in the entire world we are you know trying to reach out people to create a interfaith harmony uh, thank you very much you know if we move on to the uh, to our next question how to best explain uh, to especially young generation about the importance of religion and uh, how to achieve a peaceful world Um, yes, <laughs> this is a big question, but I guess, mm. yes, so we know that the younger generation is kind of moving away from organized religion a little bit. Mm -hmm. The research shows it, statistics show it, so, but we also see through social media that, like, concepts of spirituality still do really intrigue them and resonate with them. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, interfaith symposiums are the greatest tool to showing them the importance of religion. Um, most of what drives people away from religion is the misinformation that the media spreads. So events like interfaith conferences can really allow them to hear about religion from a true source. Um, so I would encourage them to take part in such events and see for themselves the potential that religion, and particularly Islam, has in bringing peace to the world. And besides 
the, the, the events, I think that each of us as an Ahmadi Muslim has the responsibility of being role models of our religion. So how we behave, how we practice our religious teachings, how we treat others around us can really show people what Islam is really all about. And our behavior can really get them to be more curious about it and want to learn about it. True. Uh, you know, uh, the, the World Interfaith Harmony Week, as you know, is based on two religious commandments love of God and love of the neighbor. How do you explain these uh, from an Islamic perspective? Um, yes, okay. This is a great question because actually Allah in the Holy Quran places great emphasis on hukukulabad, the rights that we owe to the creation of Allah, and mm. hukukullah, the rights that we owe to Allah. This means that the two main commandments in Islam are to worship Allah and to serve His creation, our fellow beings, and human beings, and our neighbors. So these two commandments really allow us to create a peaceful and harmonious society. Also, they go hand in hand. We cannot love God and mistreat His creation. We're only able to complete our faith when we're fulfilling both of those duties. Um, another thing is that Islam has given neighbors such a high rank in Islam that um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that the angel Gabriel had continued to urge him to be kind so much so that he began to think, uh, uh, urge him to be kind to neighbors so much so that he began to think that he would tell him that they have a share of his inheritance. This shows what a high rank neighbors are given in Islam. Um, and also to define the word neighbors, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that it refers to anybody that lives 40 houses in each direction of our house. So with this definition being so broad, it almost encompasses a whole town. If all of us took the time to serve this many people around us by taking care of the little corner of our world uh, in th that we're living in, imagine the positive impact that we can have on the world. And not only on the world, but also in our relationship with Allah, we can get closer to Him. Uh, indeed. Um, the answer, I guess, if we discuss about, especially in Ecuador, you have mentioned that how you're working mm -hmm. there. If you want to elaborate a bit more, how especially women organization is working in, in Ecuador, what do they do uh, in terms of interfaith or to, you know, okay. preach uh, this um, uh, your religion? Yes, okay, so in Ecuador, we're currently a very small community, but mm. we're growing. Um, and our focus here is entirely, at the moment, we do a lot of interfaith work because um, with there not being a, a large number of Muslims here, our aim, we regularly visit churches. So my husband is a missionary here, and we, mm. together, we um, on, on Sundays, we try to attend, attend churches so that um, we can extend the message of peace to them. We show them that you know islam is also uh, we have a mosque a mission house here and we would we give them an invitation to visit us as well um and of course because it's a it's a largely a roman catholic country we sometimes don't get the best response from people they 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 would they say that we're not really looking to have interfaith dialogue only people from their community are allowed within the mosque but uh, within their church or and and vice versa they're not they're not able to visit us but um, there are some very open communities as well, and we've been able to build a really good connection with the evangelical church, for example, as I mentioned. Uh, indeed. Uh, th uh, thank you very much, uh, Anson Ergis, for joining us all the way from uh, Ecuador and uh, you know, discussing uh, this important topic and giving an insight. Thank you very much once again for joining us today.
this was you were listening to Anne Sanargis. She joined us from Ecuador. She was the president of Ahmadiyya Women Auxiliary Organization of Ecuador and uh, she discussed uh, the topic uh, of interfaith, uh, how they are doing in Ecuador and what kind of efforts they are making to promote interfaith harmony in the society. Uh, moving back to the topic we were discussing earlier regarding <coughs> Islam, one thing, uh, you know, if we discussed just specifically about religion, nowadays, you know, youth, they say that we do not need religion. We have everything what normally people, you know, learn from religion. We have good etiquettes, we are doing charities, we are doing everything what, you know, a, a religion teaches us. So what what do you think, Dr. Thaksa? Uh, I, I think they... Uh, it's a basic misunderstanding hmm. because people, when they look at the history of Islam, hmm. the early days of Islam, of course you see that there were various battles. Hmm. And in fact, if you look at the life of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, hmm. uh, throughout his life he had to fight defensive battles in hmm. order to defend themselves. The Muslims, or very few Muslims who were there, and uh, because they were being attacked, Hmm. By the by, the opponents who did not want them to spread, they didn't want them to be successful. So they had to actually fight these defensive wars, and this has led to the notion that Islam is meant to be spread by force and imposed upon others. And this is uh, this is the biggest sort of misunderstanding people have, and that's why they they try to use it that you know uh, the religion creates. Uh, wars and religious uh, religion creates differences, uh, and people are living in in harmony, in peace. And then suddenly, you know, a, a new uh, a person comes and he he brings a religion, and that creates fighting and that creates differences. But the actual purpose of these people, actually looking in depth, if you look at it, these battles, the purpose of these battles was to grant people religious freedom. Because if you look at uh, the history of Arabia, it was quite an oppressive place. Freedoms were few and far between, especially the freedom of religion. And that's why the Muslims were so heavily and fatally persecuted. Now, something had to be done, and it was, but not just for Islam. Allah says in the Holy Quran, that, and, and I quote this verse from verse 41 <coughs> from chapter 22, uh, it says, if Allah did not repel some men by means of others, there would surely have been destroyed clusters and churches and synagogues and mosques wherein the name of Allah is oft commemorated. So it was not specifically for the purpose of uh, you know, uh, defending Islam, but it was, it was to defend all, the, uh, all those who uh, worshipped God Almighty and all the worship places, they were in danger if it was not protected. And that's why these defensive wars were fought. And uh, wherever there was oppression and people were not able to uh, have freedom of religion and freedom to convert to, to whatever faith they liked. So that is where a, 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 a battle has been fought. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he enacted the noble mission of establishing religious freedom and became its foremost champion. Upon his arrival at Medina, a pact was drawn with the Jews of Medina who had not become Muslim at that time, starting 
uh, stating how the communities were to live together and remain free and how each other's <laughs> rights were to be discharged. Now, this pact, which was, you know, at that time, this, this, this pact uh, was, in fact, in, uh, was put into force. Uh, and uh, if you look at, at the, the points of this pact, even today, uh, the societies can learn lessons how they can uh, live in harmony and peace uh, together, all the Muslims, Jews, and all the different religions, they can, they can get together. So um, the points in this pact uh, were uh, that the Muslims and Jews shall live together with each other in kindness and sincerity and shall not commit any excess nor be cruel to one another. That was number one point. Number two, the Jews will keep to their own faith and Muslims to their own. Number three, the life and property of all citizens shall be respected and protected, save in the case a crime has been committed by someone. And all disputes will be referred for the profit of uh, Allah's decision because he has the determining authority, but all decisions in the respect of individual people shall be based on their respective laws. So uh, we, we see, if you look at the history, we see that many a times there were disputes and people came to, to the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, and, and he would say, you know, how, how do you want the decision to be made on, on, on what basis, according to your own law which you believe or according to Islam or you leave it to me. So, and, and people had the choice, whatever, you know, the, and, and the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, made the decisions and they all agreed to that. And um, another excellent example of tolerance and forgiveness set by the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is when he forgave all the persecutors at the time of the victory of Makkah. So, you know, the, the, this was the time when if he had to take a revenge, he, he could have taken that. And it could have been a very bloody revenge, but because they... They deserved it. They, they, they persecuted them, the Muslims, and they had killed them. They had, and they were all the culprits, basically. But uh, what he said was that uh, he said the Holy Prophet, he pronounced judgment in the words addressed by Joseph, Prophet Joseph, Joseph to his brethren. And he said, no retribution shall be exacted from you this day. Uh, that's verse 93 from chapter 12 of the Holy Quran. And he told them that they were free to go. So, so this is an example of extreme uh, forgiveness uh, to the to the enemies who had uh, you know who deserved punishment, but he forgave them. And uh, as a result of that, of course, that people. Um, they had misunderstandings about Islam, and many of them, they once they understood it, um, then they they realized that this is the true um, teaching from God Almighty, and uh, and it cannot be unless it is from God Almighty that uh, Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, who was once thrown out of his um, his town, uh, has come back uh, victorious, uh, and uh, they had seen, they were witness. And they had seen it with their own eyes. So they believed that. And particularly when they saw the, the, um, the attitude and the way the Holy Prophets behaved with them uh, and forgave them, they, many of them, they, they converted at that time to Islam. Uh, 
particularly you can, uh, if you know, uh, Hazrat uh, Abu Sufyan was one of them who was the leaders of the Quraysh. And he came, and, uh, and this is the best example you can see that he came, although he was he's afraid, but he was brought in by uh, the Holy Prophet's uncle, Abbas, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, to the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him. And he said that uh, at that time, the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, said to him that, do you believe in, in, in God Almighty, in the, in the unity of God Almighty? And, uh, and he said, yes. And then he said that, do you believe that I am the messenger of God? And uh, and he said, uh, no, I'm not still satisfied uh, that, uh, you know, you are a messenger of Allah. And at this, he said that, uh, you know, you can still live in, in peace and and you, you will not be punished uh, for that. You have freedom to do whatever you believe. And it is after that, when he saw that, he said, is it true? He couldn't believe that. And once uh, the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he reassured him. And then he said that now I believe that you are messenger of Allah. So so he, he converted to Islam. So the, this, this is the practical examples of, you know, how Islam has practically um, acted upon the, the teachings which the Holy Quran uh, has given to them. And, uh, and, and this is what actually made people convert to Islam. It's not nowhere that it was a force which was involved for converting Islam. So that is why it is important that we uh, we have, we create this harmony and the interfaith dialogue because the more people become aware of the teachings, you don't need any force for anybody to convert. Once they know what you believe, once they know what you, uh, what your practice is, then obviously they are they are going to convert and and uh, as it was mentioned earlier by one of our guests that the, uh, the 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 biggest advocate in this uh, time and age was uh, for the peace in the society and interfaith dialogue was the founder of the Ahmadiyya community Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian on whom be peace and he was always keen to have a dialogue with people. He invited people to come and stay with him, to talk to him, to listen to him. And uh, always he always welcomed. And even to the extent he went that he was ready and willing to pay the expenses for their travel if they, they would come and they, they would like to uh, listen to him and, and, and talk to him and have a dialogue with him. So, the, the, so the, to this extent, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, of course, we see that our head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He has been to all the various countries and he has been very keen to talk to people, telling them about uh, the, the, to come towards God on whom we all believe. And, and he has given the Quranic teachings to, and uh, to the, to, to even to the heads of the states and the leaders um, so that uh, interfaith uh, dialogue can help to create peace in the society in 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 this uh, uh, day and age thank you very much uh, dr uh, tariq bajwa now we'll go to our next guest uh, imam wase tariq is joining from uh, italy he's a missionary there uh, serving as a missionary and imam of ahmadiyya muslim community i welcome him in the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you imam wase tariq 
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you as well. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, thank you. Uh, Imam Vasetarik, you know, the majority of people nowadays are inclined towards materialism. And more and more people argue that there is no need for a God. What would be the Islamic response to this claim? I think the, the, the Islamic response would be show them mm. there is a God. You know, um, the thing is, the, the God that is now being represented by all the major religions is is something very remote. Um, you know, he he sometimes whispers a certain feeling in someone's heart, or he. Um, you know, it, it's us that we need to, um, I don't know, put his uh, glory in this earth in, in whatever matter uh, religions define it. In a way, atheism is uh, a product of a religion that were not able to show that this God is as living and as present in our lives today as he was at the time of uh, their founders and uh, their prophets. Um, one time, an atheist, he made a very interesting challenge to me, and he said, you know, you as a Muslim, you believe in one God, so, you know, all the reasons that I, you will give me why you do not believe in idols, I will put the same argument in front of you and refuse Nazubillah, your God. Mm. But he didn't know that we are from the Ahmadiyya community. So, but that that argument itself, you know, makes it itself makes it uh, at least ponder. You know, why why don't we believe in idols? Because they can't help us. Because they never speak. They never reply. Actually, if you go to this experiment in the Quran and see all the reasons why God tells us not to believe in these idols, unfortunately, these are the reasons that many religions actively today indoctrinate as their concept of God. He mm. doesn't speak anymore. He doesn't. He's just. You just have to pray for your own feeding, for your own good. And, uh, you know, this prayer is not going to have an effect. So my, my answer remains the same. You know, the, the, you, you can give them a lot of answers on 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 the theological level, on uh, a rational level, um, which are valid. But the, the best thing is that, you know, you yourself have, have your, a relationship with Allah who is living, who is present, and uh, inshallah ta'ala, through through this relationship, um, this is what the Ahmadiyya community is working around all over the world, is that people will recognize that yes, there is Allah who is uh, alive, who is strong, who is glorious, and uh, who has all the same attributes to be recognized as we find in the stories of, uh, of prophets. Uh, indeed. Uh, you know, what could be the role of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in resolving conflicts and war? You know, we, first of all, maybe we, we, although it is an urgent need, 
but um, the 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 contribution of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is also uh, more addressed towards a longer term goal, you know, which is uh, you know generation after generation purifying um, each other up to a point of view that the next leaders naturally will be the ones who will adhere to the Quranic principles of justice and uh, and truthfulness and, and uh, you know, uh, work for the cause of peace together with, uh, with different nations and different tribes. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, um, politics and politicians, they are very much limited to the election cycle or, um, you know, a media cycle to, to run a certain project and then just, you know, have, have a benefit out of it and then just get out of it. But in order to truly work for peace, you know, you have to be independent of, of these matters, which only uh, religious communities can do because they have a long-term goal in mind. So in that sense, sometimes an immediate peace is uh, um, preferred by politicians that uh, in fact would uh, put a lot of fragility into tomorrow's society but it is still celebrated as long as uh, the election cycle goes. That's the thing that in, in the Ahmadi community which has been has been working for um, a, a century now is to, to work on the education of children of the next generation and keep repeating and reminding to them what are the true principles of peace. You know, um, the the Quran uh, gives a very fundamental guideline, which is uh, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity. And then it continues this, and let not the people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, This is that is near to righteousness, and fear Allah, surely Allah is aware of what you do. This this awareness also, uh, I'm connecting this to the first point, of uh, Allah on our actions, you know, is also something very important, which helps us move into longer term goals, in that sense. So, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community on... on an immediate level, obviously, we, we have uh, many systems in place where we, we help um, people, our our khulafa, uh, and uh, in this time and age, the fifth uh, khalifa, his uh, his holiness, Mr. Masood Ahmad, may Allah be um, his helper, has uh, um, been delivering um, a lot of um, emphasis and a lot of uh, lectures in uh, peak um, congresses and um, 
in uh, in congresses around the world and parliaments around the world you know uh, reminding them at a time that you know whatever peace that we have found ourselves in living right now is still very fragile because we have not adhered to the concepts of justice and uh, just just a few ten a few years ago you know some some people commented that oh no this is too much of um, you know it it is exaggerated it's not that europe will never fall into this thing again or it is very far but then in the end you know we we know now unfortunately the situation that we're in and it was a long thing coming so whereas we can on the outer part just keep reminding them and and praying so hard that these things don't uh, continue and Allah somehow reform these people before it goes uh, it gets worse is continuously putting the effort into the education of the our community mm-hmm. and into the education of the children to to grow up to be more responsible political leaders um in favor of their own country and the neighbors indeed uh, thank you very much you know imam wasitariq thank you for giving the insight of these uh, you know very important questions and uh, what should be doing how to resolve the conflict and war uh, thank you very much once again uh, for joining us today and uh, you know it was a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much it was a pleasure to be here zakumullah may allah bless you uh, this was you were listening to imam wasitariq all the way from uh, Italy and uh, he's Imam of Ahmadiyya Muslim community there. So basically as we were discussing uh, before uh, the guest uh, that Islam always you know the Islamic teachings is to create um, interfaith harmony and that's what the holy prophet uh, may Allah please uh, peace be upon Allah be upon him uh, he did in his lifetime and that's why he taught to all Muslims that try to have as much as tolerance you can try to respect each other that's how we can create uh, you know peace and harmony with the society it's not only islam says that even you know all the non uh, muslim scholars they have written the same thing that islam is a religion of harmony and they have given the example of the holy prophet peace be upon him that how he has shown the interfaith harmony and how he has lived his life and that if by the time we start living the same life trying to act upon the teaching of Islam and how the Holy Prophet Sallam you know taught us then indeed we will create you know the same harmony within the society uh, if we discuss especially about the motto of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association which you know truly follow the footsteps of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the belief on the Messiah of the time who was a true follower of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and you know as a community we believe that love for all hated for none and the fifth khalifa of the community is holiness mirza masood ahmed may allah be his helper who always remains at the forefront of establishing peace and harmony in the world you know i've given so many addresses to discuss this specific topic that how we can create peace and harmony within the society and he has given his speeches uh, in different important uh, you know uh, uh, places and try to you know uh, de- uh, you know uh, educate people that what islam says and what islam you know what is the history of islam islam is not the religion who you know uh, basically uh, you know teach uh, intolerance the islam is a religion who teaches tolerance and uh, you know teaches love and harmony and the how we should be living 
and indeed is is for us for muslims to follow the footsteps of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and try to act upon all the teachings so we can achieve you know the same uh, you know uh, we we can create the same uh, kind of uh, love and harmony in, within the society jazakumullah asmi jazak thank you uh, for our listeners who are listening uh, to us we will be back after the you know 5 uh, o'clock news please join us after the break allahu akbar listening to the voice of islam radio we were discussing in the first hour uh, the interfaith uh, you know harmony uh, how we can create the harmony within the society and to you know discuss that what is needed in this day and age to you know have a harmonious uh, society around us as i mentioned earlier in the beginning of the show that we will be discussing in the second hour another important topic which is regarding hijab uh, which is modesty uh, you know in in my crown so we will be discussing this topic in depth this is a topic which is very important to be discussed on every level to understand that what does actually means and sometime you know hijab is taken or perceived in 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 a, in a different way which is not right and here we will be discussing and understanding that what does to hijab is and why you know muslim women they are if they are taking it if they are doing the hijab and if you know they, if they are doing willingly or they are they forced for it and ultimately you know you will find out with the discussion that hijab is not something which are enforced on on women it is something you know they, they themselves they, they they decide to take it and they feel that this is you know uh, they are safer they they feel more modest in in into hijab and definitely we will discuss this topic and uh, you will find out that what they think and especially in this particular hour we will be having some guest and the guest are women from ahmadiyya muslim association and uh, uh, they will be discussing about uh, the hijab and what does it mean uh, the true concept of hijab in islam and uh, you know are they you know forced for it and what are the teachings they follow and why they are doing hijab if we discuss particularly hijab uh, which is arabic uh, word is to that means cover or a barrier so the hijab is a garment worn by some muslim women who cover their hair and is considered as a sign of modesty by muslims by the uh, 21st century this meaning had become more familiar in muslim minority men and women of varying 
conservative clothing and February 1st marks the annual World Hijab Day which is today in recognition of millions of Muslim women who choose to wear the hijab and live a life of modesty. In Islam, modesty is considered part of faith and a woman's asset. Therefore, she is commanded to always dress modestly. The current head of and caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, said that in this regard that parda, which is hijab, is an Islamic commandment that has been explained in detail in the Holy Quran. The hallmark of pious ladies, as stated, is that they observe haya. Haya means modesty. Remain steadfast on haya and establish haya. So stay tuned. We will be discussing this very important topic that what the hijab stands for and what is the mean uh, what what does it mean to muslim women if we discuss about the history of world hijab day 1st of february 2013 marked the first annual world hijab day the brainchild of the world hijab day movement is a new york native nazma khan who came up with the idea as a means to foster personal freedom of religious expression and culture understanding by inviting women from all the walks of life to experience the hijab for one day on February 1st annually. By opening up new pathways to understanding, Nazma hoped to uh, contract some of the conservative surroundings why Muslim women choose to wear the hijab. And Nazma knew exactly what she is talking about. The social activist came to the USA from Bangladesh at the tender age of uh, 11, where she found herself being the only hijabi in middle school. She remembers her experience as a difficult one. Growing up in a Bronx and New York City, I experienced a great deal of discrimination due to my hijab. She reflects, in the middle school, I was Batman or Ninja. When I entered the university after 9-11, I was called Osama Bin Laden or terrorist. It is awful. I figured... The only way to end discrimination if we ask our fellow sisters to experience hijab themselves. It's estimated that people in over 150 countries take part in World Hijab Day every year. So, we will be going to our first guest who is with us, uh, Nuzat Ahmad, Religion Vice President of Midlands Ahmadiyya Muslim Women Association. I would like to uh, welcome her in the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Nuzat Ahmad, thank you very much for joining us today. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. To start off uh, the very, very important topic, would you you know, like to tell us that what does the hijab mean to Muslim women? Uh, what does the hijab mean to Muslim women? Uh, uh, the concept behind the veiling of a woman is to preserve her chastity and modesty. Uh, mm-hmm. Islam stresses Islam stresses the relationship between body and mind, and in covering the body, uh, one shields the heart from impurities. So the outward display of the veil represents taqwa, which is righteousness, righteousness within the heart. So the purpose of hijab in Islam is to inspire modesty in both 
men and women. And the commandment applies to both men and women, but through different means. Uh, the Islamic veil does not at all mean that women be imprisoned as though they were locked in jail. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the Holy Quran is that women cover themselves and refrain from gazing at men that are beyond the permissible bounds. So the strange men. Uh, women are not barred from leaving the house to tend to their social needs. They are welcome to go out and about, but must control their gaze and cover themselves. Uh, a Muslim woman in hijab is seen by onlookers to be guarding her modesty. Her message is clear. She doesn't want men to look at her. Uh, indeed. You know, if uh, we discuss the concept of veil or hijab in Islam, does it only relevant to women? As you have slightly touched this topic, can you elaborate a bit more? Is it just only relevant to women or is it relevant to men as well? Okay, to, to answer this question, uh, I would like to quote a verse from the Holy Quran first. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 24, verse 31, men are instructed to lower their gaze and guard their private parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, the words are, mm-hmm. Say to the believing men that they restrain their looks and guard their private parts. That is purer for them. In the very same chapter, which is chapter 24, verse 32, and it is a chapter, which is obviously the next verse, women are admonished to cover their heads and to pull their head coverings over their bosoms. And the words of the Quran are, And say to the believing women that they restrain their looks and guard their private parts. And in the very same verse, uh, at the end, the women are commanded, and that they draw their head coverings over their bosom. So why have I quoted these two verses? Just to make you, the, uh, the people listening more aware of the fact that in these two verses of the Holy Quran, men are instructed first to lower their gaze before women are instructed to wear the hijab. So my point is that if men fulfill this very first injunction, many of the ills that plague society are eliminated already. So parda applies to both men and women through different means. Uh, I would like to quote uh, uh, an, an extract from the writings of the promised Messiah. He says, and I quote, Every righteous person who wants to keep his heart pure should not let his eyes wander unrestrained like animals. Lowering the gate would lowering the gaze would convert his natural impulses into a high moral quality. Uh, indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, why do women have to cover up? Shouldn't it be about educating men? Uh, okay. Shouldn't it be about educating hmm. men? Uh, I believe it goes hand in hand True. with the commandment of lowering the gaze in the Holy Quran. Uh, it requires the participation of both men and women for it to be successful in eliminating lust and other such ills from society. Uh, if, women, if women walk with their eyes wide open, unrestrained and without the veil, mm. uh, then men whose hearts 
are under the influence of Satan will continue creating problems for them. So it is necessary for all men and women to obey instructions of Allah the Almighty in order to save themselves and their families from any discredit. So men, I believe, who are crooked may take a minor matter and blow it out of proportion, like it so happens in the modern day society, which can lead to unnecessary comments or criticism. The Holy Prophet also stated to his wife to observe Parda even from a eunuch, to mm-hmm. avoid him spreading indecency, to, sp- to avoid him spreading rumors about them. Uh, in this context, with your permission, I would like to quote uh, another excerpt from the writings of the Promised Messiah. And he says that the Quran instructs Muslim men and women to lower their gaze. When both men and women do not cast glances at one another, both will remain protected. The Quran is not like the gospel which commands a person to not look with lust. Mm. It is regretful the writer of the gospel was unable to realize that a lustful glance means nothing. It is the glance in in itself which arouses (laughs) lustful thoughts in a person. So the outcome of this teaching is not hidden to those who read the newspapers. They are probably aware of the utterly shameful displays that are reported to take place in the parks of London and elsewhere. True. You know, thank you very much. It was um, well explained. Uh, If we move on to the next question, especially discussing about Ahmadi, you know, uh, gatherings, you know, they are usually segregated. Why is there a need of segregation? And if the women are observing parda or wearing veils, then why they have to sit separately? So, uh, I believe uh, segregation is actually there to benefit mm-hmm. women. women. Mm-hmm. And it is contrary to what the popular belief is that, unfortunately, women, they are segregated because the Muslim woman is suppressed. Mm-hmm. I believe segregation is for her own benefit and when women are segregated they are able to offer salat and enjoy their functions more freely and they are able to remove their veil their outer garment if they wish without the worry or concern of men being around them or being stared at by men of questionable character so if women and men are in the same area whether it is for a salat or a function so all men, they have different, you know, they are different from each other in the way of thinking, in their nature. So some men, they may be distracted from the event or their prayers may only focus or they, or they may be distracted from the event or from the, their prayers and may only focus or glance at women, which will ultimately lead to neglect of their prayers and the purpose of the gathering, So, which is counterproductive for the progress of the community and one's own spiritual progress. So... I believe it's more, uh, it's best in the interest of women that they stay segregated. Uh, I remember one of our, uh, one of the incidents uh, uh, that uh, happened at our annual con- convention in the UK a few mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. There was a European guest who came along uh, to spend a day at the annual convention and she was staying with the ladies in the ladies side of the Jalsaga. So she, what she said after experiencing a whole day in the company of women only, she said that initially she was very skeptical uh, that segregating women was a good idea. 
she was very skeptical about mm. it but as the day proceeded she felt more comfortable mm. she was more at ease only in only presence of women so she felt more comfortable more free and more uh, at ease away from the glance of the men uh, she spent the day in the company of women and she really enjoyed that uh, indeed uh, if i you know move on to the next question i would like to read out the extract from the prophet messiah sallam you know he mentioned he writes in his malfuzat he said that in the current day objections are raised against the veil however people do not realize that the islamic veil is no prison meaning it is not a prison it is only a barrier which prevents the free mixing of unrelated men and women the veil saves them from stumbling could you please explain what is meant by stumbling okay uh stumbling i would uh, impl- would imply over here evil thoughts uh urges evil temptations that can lead man to sin zakmullah uh as i can uh, as we, as we know that the original vice president of midlands i would like to ask how you know the women organization is working in midlands and how even though they wear hijab and we know personally that they go out they do preaching they do different you know tree planting would you like to share your experience as well please okay, so uh, yes sir, in terms of uh, doing all the the social things mm-hmm. uh, holding public events and uh, doing the tree plantation everything so we Uh, alhamdulillah the ladies in the midlands they are observing pers of a very good standard of a very mm. high standard i must say and uh, right. nothing prevents them from carrying out their the um, mm. the duties and other sociable acts and uh, they are managing it really well and i believe that it's the khalifa or the caliph or caliph he is there to guide us mm. how to observe parda and adapt to it in different situations whether it be at uh, a sociable event or at be uh, uh, a public event or elsewhere women uh, in the midlands region uh, by the grace of god they are very well educated they are going out and about doing their jobs uh, studying and uh, other uh, you know things they are doing uh, in their daily lives and uh, the guidance of our caliph we are managing really well alhamdulillah by the grace of allah uh thank you very much uh, nuzat ahmed for joining us today and giving us insight on these questions it was a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much thank you very much <laughs> So you were listening to Nuzat Ahmed who were uh, who is a religious uh, regional vice women <coughs> association and uh, she was discussing about uh, the true concept of hijab and uh, why women cover and what is the teachings of uh, Islam regarding men you know uh, doing uh, you know parda or the veil of their eyes to lower down their gaze and do not uh, look at uh, you know women If we discuss specifically about the hijab in Islam in the Holy Quran women are commanded to cover their heads and pull their coverings over their bosoms however the style and degree of veil varies according to the situation the veil affords women modesty respect and dignity and protects herself from harm and the evils of society by covering her beauty in chapter 33 verse 60 of the holy quran god almighty says O Prophet, tell your wives and your daughters and the women of the believers 
that they, sh- they should pull down upon them of their outer clocks from their head over their faces. That is more likely that they may thus be recognized and not molested, and Allah is most forgiving, merciful. In the light of this instruction, some women choose to cover their faces, whereas others prefer to cover their heads only, leaving their faces uncovered, and bear of makeup, both of which are veiled, interpretations according to the various schools of Islamic jurisprudence. Some choice, some choose to adopt a, a compromise between the two by covering their faces when they apply makeup. The veil can take many forms. The hijab generally refers to head covering, which covers the head and the neck, leaving the face uncovered. These head covering come in many shapes and styles, but the primary objective they all have is to cover the hair completely. The second is niqab is generally understood as a clothing that covers the face as well as the head with the eyes showing or with the netting over the eyes. There is a burqa, is a veil which covers the head, face and body of a woman from head to toe, allowing her to see from a gaze-like material over the eye area. This style of veiling is seen in the Middle East more so than the West and it is the way in which some Muslim women choose to cover themselves. Some cultural traditions can influence the style of veil women prefer to adapt. So the covering of the head is not concept uh, you know, that, that, that is unique to Islam but is found in the biblical literature as well. And the Bible taught the wearing of veil long before Islam and in the Old Testament we read that when Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had, for she had said unto the servant, What man is this that worketh in the field to meet us? And the servants had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. So as you can see in the Bible as well, is mentioned about covering herself. And the New Testament read that, and I quote, But every woman that breath of uh, prophecies with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shown. But if it be shame for a woman to shorn or shaven, let her be covered. There is no law in Islam specifically that punishes a woman for not wearing a veil and according to Islamic law, a man has no jurisdiction in forcing a woman to wear a veil or hijab. He can if he, if he has some authority over a woman as a husband or a father or a brother. You know, admonish or request and in the case of a father to require it of his daughter, but absolutely no right in actively forcing women to adopt the hijab. And however, women are strongly advised to veil themselves as appropriate to maintain their honor and dignity. At this point, uh, I'd like to mention that there is a question was asked to, mm. to, the, to, the, to the audience and uh, online. And uh, some of the responses from, uh, from uh, the woman, uh, one of it says, uh, is, uh, the hijab is good because I don't need to 
bother with the hairstyle. Another one is the hijab is my identity, and, and it's actually two of them uh, saying the same thing. Uh, hijab, uh, another one is the hijab is our pride, the hijab is our protection, the hijab is freedom of religious expression, the hijab is my deen, the hijab is my confidence, and another response is the hijab is something I am proud of. So obviously these responses, they do indicate that it does not suppress women, it is not forced upon them, they like it and that's why they they wear it and they, they wear the veil. And uh, as you mentioned that it is not only in the Islamic teachings, it has been before and uh, <clears throat> Uh, in the in the biblical teachings, it is there. According to Saint Paul, the veil is a sign of man's authority over her. It is possible that Saint Paul's pronouncement may have led many in the West to see the veil as a symbol of inferiority, subservience, and degradation. In contrast, the veil in Islam signifies modesty, as well as serving as a means of protection. Within the past few years, the hijab has made headlines in many countries, including France. And an article of the time speaks about the complicated history behind France's hijab controversy. According to the article, scholars traced France's focus on Muslim head coverings and the women who wear them back to the country's imperial past in North Africa and the Middle East, particularly in Algeria. Alia Al-Saji, an associate professor of philosophy at McGill University, tells Time, Banning the hijab is about colonialism. French colonization of Muslim countries was often about controlling and managing populations that were of diverse religions. The hijab is a way of clearly showing that you are a Muslim, you are Muslim, which is colonially constructed as being opposed to colonialism, but it's also a site of potential resistance. French colonization in Algeria began with an invasion in 1830 and was characterized by violent genocide, settler colonialism, and a series of shifting laws called the indigenant, which, among others, determined who could be a French citizen. Al-Sadi notes that these laws were influential in emphasizing a difference for the Muslim majority in Algeria. For example, while Jewish Algerian natives were recognized as French citizens in 1870 uh, with the I don't know this French pronunciation, Camus decree, Muslim Algerian natives were not eligible for French citizenship unless they renounced their religion and culture and adopted a French identity. Inherent in the colonial attitude is the belief that one's civilization, its language, its values and its practices is an improvement on the lives of those who are colonized. The belief manifested itself drastically in the attitude towards Algerian Muslim women who were seen as both oppressed and exotic. Under this mindset, their liberation could become the moral justification for imperialism's violent casualties. This dynamic is perhaps best illustrated during the Algerian War of Independence when a series of public unveiling ceremonies were organized in 1958. And during these ceremonies, many of which were arranged by the French army, Algerian women removed their hikes, traditional wraps worn by North African women, or had them uh, removed by European women before throwing them to the ground or burning them. Often speeches were given afterwards in sp support of the French and emancipation of Muslim women. While these highly publicized ceremonies were framed as spaces of empowerment for Muslim women, other accounts of this history tells us a different story. In his book, Burning the Veil, the Algerian War and the Emancipation of Muslim Women, 
1952, Neil McMaster notes that some of the women who took part in these ceremonies were very poor, recruited from high schools, or in some cases, pressured to participate with threats to their safety and that of their families. In one harrowing case, when the army could not find a Muslim woman to lead the ceremony, they enlisted Monique Emezian, a young woman from a wealthy and pro-French family who had not previously worn a veil or hike to speak in exchange for sparing the life of her brother, whom they had already arrested and tortured. The symbolic power of the veil during this time, however, was not only recognized by the French, but also by those fighting for Algerian liberation. In his essay, uh, Algeria Unveiled, Franz Fanon makes the case that the veil can be a tool of anti-colonial resistance and a way of limiting access to the oppressors, going so far as to call it a bone of contention in a grandiose battle. During the war, the veil also became a literal tool of resistance. Some female freedom fighters for the National Liberation Front used hikes to conceal weapons and classified information after this tactic was discovered, they used unveiling to their advantage, adopting European dress as a way to fly under the radar of the French. Within France, at the intersection of gender, ethnic, and religious identities, the Muslim veil or head covering took on new significance in the 20th century because the popularity of Orientalist art during this time, the veil already had stereotypes of the foreign and forbidden. But veiling was no longer just a physical marker of religious or cultural difference. It was also seen as an affront to assimilation, a visible symbol of resistance to colonization. This meaning was intensified by the state's staunch espousal of a unified French cultural and social identity in opposition to multiculturalism. This belief can be traced all the way back to the French Revolution, which has also been credited with planting the seeds for Laissite France's principle of secularism. Although Laissite originally originated in a 1905 law about the separation of church and state, it has been used in recent years as the driving force behind the anti-hijab policies. In 2004, Muslim headscarves were among the array of religious symbols banned from being born in French public schools. And in 2010, the country prohibited full-face veils like niqabs in public spaces like streets, parks, and public transportation, becoming the first European country to enforce a nationwide ban and even launching a government campaign that uh, proudly stated that the Republic is lived with an uncovered face. This sentiment took on a new irony at the start of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 when France mandated mask-wearing in public spaces while still banning Muslim face coverings, this strange, um, you know, strange thing that uh, you know the, the people <laughs> were forced to wear the mask, <laughs> and yet they they were not, they they you know they had this law that you have to uh, to uncover your okay. face. True, uh, indeed, uh, Doctor Sir. We now we have our next um, guest with us, uh, Sabah Malik. Uh, I welcome her in the show. She's a president of Ahmadiyya Muslim Women Association of Birmingham North. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you very much for joining uh, in the show. Assalamu alaikum, rahmatullah. Thank you for having me. Uh, to start off uh, from very first question, I would like to know the, your experience. Uh, as we know, you were born and raised in the UK, and uh, you are a mother of two daughters. 
how difficult was it for you to wear the hijab, especially living in the Western society? And do you feel that the newer generation finds it easier or harder? Mm, yes. Um, for me, wearing the jihad, uh, hijab was definitely challenging um, at one point in my life, mainly due to my own confidence issues. The struggle I faced was that on one hand, I wanted to wear the hijab as mm -hmm. I believed it was the best thing for me. Um, but, you know, I was worried about losing my friends. Um, however, True. with prayers and guidance, I realized that if I lost anyone because of wearing the headscarf, such a friend was not worth having in my life. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, nothing is above the instructions of God Almighty. And also, I think I was lucky enough to have strong and positive uh, female role models in my life who guided me towards what really mattered and um, one of my role models was my mum for sure and uh, if you allow me I can share an example of how she supported me um, with my love of gymnastics actually when I was very young mm -hmm. I, I was a gymnastics fanatic to be honest <laughs> and, and, uh, and I still am actually and I wanted to be part of the school team and it, you know my mum was very brave she, she spoke with the coach to explain that the team uniform was not modest enough for me and that I needed to cover my legs, etc. And, and my coach, um, she was amazing. Um, I think she respected my mom's honesty and um, she actually ordered a special kit for me to match the team. And she also supported me at competitions. Um, where other, you know, other coaches were, coaches would often complain about what I was wearing. So mm. that was a positive experience for me, and uh, it showed me that I can do what I want without compromising my faith. And um, going back to your question um, regarding the the newer generation, I think women dressing modestly and wearing the hijab it's much more prevalent now in our multicultural society in Britain. So it would appear to be easier. However, I think due to social media, our girls and boys face challenges now 24 seven. Um, and there's no escape, even within your own home. And um, my eldest daughter has shared with me that the hardest um, uh, thing she feels is um, feeling left out when all her friends are constantly making videos and posting content. Mm -hmm. So um, I personally think it's, just really sad that from such a young age children are pressured into making videos and exposing themselves just to follow the latest trends mm. and I think this is the reason now more than ever before our youth need positive role models in their lives to guide them towards the things that really matter so um, yes I hope to be um, that role model for both of my daughters as well. Uh, indeed. Uh, do do Ahmadi Muslim women take part in the World Hijab Day initiative or any similar activities? Mm. If yes, yes, how effective do you feel our such activities are? Mm, yes, um, I've had opportunities over many years to join with the Ahmadi Muslim women in celebrating World Hijab Day through interfaith gatherings and library displays. And I think it's really important because it provides an opportunity for people to openly ask questions and they can even try a headscarf on to see what it's like. 
Um, and it reminds me of the expression, you can never understand what someone is going through until you experience it yourself. And I think the most common misconception I have come across is that Islam compels women to wear the hijab and that its purpose is to demean and belittle women. However, um, when I have been part of such activities, the women who try a hijab on for the day have expressed that it doesn't take anything away from who they are as a person. So um, having special days like this to raise awareness is important. And in my opinion, actually, there needs to be a lot more public understanding, even within Muslim groups, on what the purpose of the hijab and modest dress is in Islam. <clears throat> True. Uh, can the veil or hijab restrict a woman uh, in any way, or do you think uh, it is just a base assumption that uh, the veiling or hijab, doing hijab, restrict women doing mm. Uh, you know, if, if we just discuss, uh, you know, going out for work or, you know, preaching or mm. doing some other activities. Yes, um, this question comes up quite often, actually. Mm. And in my opinion, um, it's a biased assumption and the hijab does not restrict a woman in any way. Um, if individuals would stop to consider the reasons logically, I believe they can take steps towards understanding the philosophy behind modest dress and the hijab. And in my opinion, the, the main purpose of the hijab is to demonstrate that women should not be judged by their looks. Um, I find modest dress and the hijab very empowering for me because it is a rejection of physical vanity. And um, we only have to watch the news on any given day to be reminded of the challenges women face. It's, it's a sad fact that women are abused and taken advantage of by men. So... In this way, dressing modestly and, and wearing hijab actually frees women and protects them from unwanted attention, which is something our previous speaker actually mentioned. And um, another point I want to uh, make here is that there's this huge expectation in society that to be accepted and valued, women must dress and look in a certain way. And I mean, is that not restrictive? So I think... The pressure um, is so damaging both physically and mentally, yet in Islam, dressing modestly and wearing the hijab frees a woman um, in from these pressures, and it reminds men and women that our actions are actually more important than the way that we look. Um, and if, to give an example of Muslim women in action, actually, I can, um, I'd like to speak about our tree planting campaign, where the Ambia Muslim women have pledged to plant 100,000 trees in the UK in celebration of our centenary year. And um, with the grace of God Almighty, I think we've um, planted over 70,000 so far nationally. And uh, the MD women in the Midlands, which is where I'm from, we've planted around 26,500 so far, which I think is amazing. And um, personally, it's been a great experience. And I think it has also had a positive impact on those we have met at these sessions they are pleasantly surprised to see us um and the news has spread i think that md ladies are active in their local communities and and we are engaged in making a difference um, which i think is really positive uh, great uh, good to hear that uh, 
to move on to the next question. Uh, when anti-Islamic forces uh, wish to raise objections against the Islamic traditions and uh, you know, the religious commandments of Padha, uh, they play the women's liberation card to achieve their devastated motives. And uh, the, they object by blaming Islam of uh, serving the rights of women. Why is the hijab still seen as a tool of oppression by some people as a Muslim woman? How does this notion make you feel? Mm, yeah, sadly, uh, this is another example of how politics and mm. extremists have hijacked the beautiful teachings of Islam. You see, um, on one hand, there are countries where there are regimes that use religion to control their people. They force women to wear the hijab in addition to restricting them access to education and other freedoms which have no basis in Islam. And um, as a Muslim, I know that the Quran states in, in the second chapter that there is no compulsion in religion. So you cannot and you should not force women to wear the hijab. It is a matter of choice. Yet on the other hand, however, there are people in the West who mm -hmm. equally don't understand the teachings of Islam regarding the veil and modesty. Um, I think they do not understand that Muslim women, especially in free and open societies like myself, um, choose to wear the hijab for all the reasons um, that we've already discussed. So um, you end up with this ridiculous situation that some countries, in some countries, women are actually forbidden to wear the headscarf, even if it is their own choice. They are compelled and their freedoms and human rights are oppressed, just like in extremist regimes. So, you know, this is definitely very frustrating. Um, but it is for this reason that I think people need to be educated about the true virtues of the Islamic veil. And um, I believe that it is my duty, as well as the responsibility of all true Muslim um, women and men to share this information. Um, just like we have hopefully done today. Indeed. <clears throat> Thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us today and uh, you know, giving us uh, insight of a very important topic uh, uh, of hijab and what it actually means. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sabah Malik, uh, for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Jazakumullah. Thank you for having me. Uh, you were listening uh, to Sabah Malik. Uh, she was the president of, uh, or she is the president of Ahmadiyya Muslim Women Association of Birmingham North, and she was discussing about uh, uh, to about hijab and <clears throat> the other aspect of hijab, whether it's forced or what, how it empowers uh, the women. Uh, one thing uh, we need to understand when we discuss about hijab, when people say it's been forced to do hijab, you know, either way. We are, you know, somehow restricted or we have to follow one way or another way. If we are following religion, we have to do hijab. If we think we are not following religion, we cannot say that we are free. We are still somehow in prison of, you know, society. It's a society who tells us not to wear it. Sometimes we want to wear it, but we're not wearing it. But when we're not wearing it and we are somehow... You know, under the pressure of society, we want to go out, we want to wear such a cloth, which are, you know, it's not, you know, had in your mind or it, you're just doing because other people are doing it. So you somehow pressurized within the society to follow that trend. And the many of them somehow, you know, f following 
the the the, the materialism materialism or you know the the ideology which has created within this society that how women should wear so basically one way or another way you are following somebody you are not f- fully free to 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 do what you want to do and those women who are basically doing uh, hijab they are basically following the commandments of allah the almighty and they wish to follow those commandments so when anybody wants to do anything he should be free to follow whatever they want and as we were discussing about hijab hijab gives a modesty to women haya uh, in arabic word means you know natural or inherent shyness and the sense of a modesty in islamic terminology it is mainly used in the context of modesty the most significant uh, predictor of the person's moral behavior is the quality of the person's god consciousness or righteousness it is the attribute of god uh, consciousness that raises man's morality to a higher level and the constant struggle to improve the quality of god consciousness is what involves into a real and a viable relationship between man and god we might find it is difficult it uh, difficult to be defined a modesty as a virtue but we all agree to some extent that it should exist something just should not be seen by most people and the question is all about where to draw the hem line hmm. one thing the holy quran makes clear it starts with the modesty of men and then modesty of women hmm. both in acts and dress by bringing up the word benefit as an opposite to sin the verse 2 uh 220 of quran clarifies that haram is that which is harmful in fact everything becomes meaningful with their opposite for example if there is no cold we never understand what heat is therefore sin is that which harms us and when god says do not he means do not harm yourself an islamic principle related to haram is that if something is prohibited then anything that leads to it is also considered haram a similar principle is that the sin of haram is not limited to the person who engages in the prohibited activity but the sin also extends to others who support the person in the activity whether it be material or moral support by unveiling what should not be unveiled we are inviting the others to sin or at least entertain sinful thoughts which are an inducement to sinful acts and and since men tend to be more visual and immediate in their sexual appetites such bodily modesty falls somewhat more upon the fairer sex but the principles are the same for both the holy founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community the promised messiah hazrat mirza ghulam ahmad on whom be peace said in his book the philosophy of the teaching of islam says that as the natural urges of man become very dangerous when they are roused and often destroy the moral and spiritual qualities they are described in god's holy book as the self that incites to evil modesty is not as an imposition but rather an act of love which wills the go- the good of the other so that the beauty and vulnerability vulnerability of the human body might be revealed at the right time and in the right way <clears throat> So, so we will now listen to some audio clips which ha- we have uh, asked Ahmadi women and girls from across the UK what the hijab means to them and this is what they had to say What does the hijab mean to me 
um, the hijab is a commandment from Allah. So in itself, it's something that as a Muslim woman, we should follow. Um, it is my identity as a Muslim woman, and it's a reminder to myself always um, that my hijab is not just a covering, but also how I walk, how I talk, overall just how I behave in general. Most people assume that Muslim women are oppressed for wearing it. But myself, I would say wearing the hijab is actually a liberating feeling. It's a freedom in itself because it means that with my hijab, I have the choice to show myself to people how I want to, um, how Allah would be best pleased with me. And that in itself is empowering. Asalaamu Alaikum. For me, hijab provides me a comfort, almost a protection for when I go out and, you know, I socialize with people. Um, and also it's part of my modesty as well. For me, hijab is very synonymous to, you know, protecting my modesty. And, you know, after after taking hijab for more than 10 years now, it's part of, I would say it's very much a part of my identity as well. It's a part of my identity. It's what is encouraged in Islam, my religion. And it's how I choose to present myself in society. I think a better way to put this would be to ask why I choose to do purda or wear hijab in the first place. So first and foremost, I choose to wear it because Allah has encouraged us to do so in the Holy Quran. From my own personal experiences as a student, as a worker, and just as a part of the society, I felt that wearing a hijab helps me focus more on what I've set out to do. I think many would agree that unfortunately everywhere we go, we as women are judged and assigned values based on our appearances rather than our work and capabilities. I don't want to get swept away in this culture. It's very draining and demoralizing. And as humans, we do want to be pretty and be told we're pretty. I think that's part of human nature. It's quite natural. But I find that sometimes, if not most of the times, it's very hard not to get completely swept away in the standards and societal pressures and expectations. So for me personally, I found hijab, Parda, takes away these worries for me. I can completely focus on my studies and my work without worrying about my hair, my appearance and what others think of, might think of me. I guess the end point is, I do Parda and wear hijab because it helps me be free. So the hijab is a form of protecting you physically from others. It's a sort of red signal to others that I'm... I'm a Muslim, so stay away. Stay away from me in the sense that don't misbehave with me. And it also does help you spiritually as well. Spiritually in the sense that it's a constant reminder for the person wearing it, covering themselves, that I'm representing Islam. And they will probably think twice before doing anything wrong. So the hijab, the purpose of hijab is to protect themselves, to represent the community and as mentioned the holy quran does instruct not only just women but also men men have their own way of doing it they have to also cover themselves but it's in their eyes as well that they have to restrain their looks and mostly people think it's women who just have to cover themselves but it is actually meant for both assalamu alaikum peace be upon you all my name is tuba rahman 
I'm a 21-year-old daughter, a university student, a community representative, and a teacher assistant. I play all of these roles while wearing a scarf, not because my father or brothers have forced it upon me, but because it gives me respect, confidence, and identity. When I travel on public transport or meet new people, my scarf protects my privacy and dignity. It creates my personal space and boundary. My name is Sara Sharma, and as an Ahmadi Muslim woman and also a working woman, wearing hijab is a very personal and a very beautiful part of me. Although it's the very first thing that others might notice on me, but this thought makes me extremely proud and it empowers me to think that I can integrate fully into this modern society while still upholding my faith. Looking back at my younger self, I realized that wearing hijab provided me with more confidence where I felt free to pursue my education and career without any restrictions. And instead of my hijab becoming a hurdle for me, it actually made me overcome those barriers. So for me, hijab means an embodiment of modesty and morality, which signifies my high standard of character, behavior, my speech and actions. And it's a part of my identity and fundamental right. Embracing and practicing the Quranic commandments of modesty or hijab upholds my dignity. And it reminds me that I belong to a community which champions the honor, respect and rights of women. It symbolizes the devotion to my faith and closeness to our beloved God Almighty. Jazakallah. I believe veil gives me empowerment because a woman's honor is in covering her beauty. It definitely gives respect. It means that one can work alongside men with more confidence and they respect you more. I don't think Immodesty is an expression of freedom and fashion. I believe it elevates my status and honor. It doesn't put me into any hardship or inferiority complex. Thanks. In the name of God, the most gracious and merciful. My name is Neha Noor Rahman and I am a student. For me, wearing the hijab is something that is extremely personal, yet it is the most visible and the very first thing people see about me. Wearing the hijab simultaneously symbolizes my religion and my culture. It's a reminder to myself that my hijab isn't just what I'm wearing, it's also what I do and what I say. It reminds me that every day I am lucky enough to be living in a country that allows me the power to choose to wear something that outwardly represents my modesty, morality and my pride in being a Muslim. For me, in no way whatsoever does my hijab restrict my goals in life, whether it is in school, my future career or just my self-growth. My hijab actually does the quite opposite, it empowers me. Indeed, uh, all uh, you have listened, all the women that how the uh, hijab is empowering them in their daily life. And of course, hijab is a symbol of modesty and a means to fight moral degradation. And it is our common observation that the protect, uh, to, the, to protect society from any serious diseases, responsible and knowledgeable leaders of society warn people about potential risks from, the, from that disease and advise them of what they should or should not be doing. And so as Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran that follow not the footsteps of Satan. And God Almighty has commanded women and men to do, you know, hijab and uh, to, sh to, 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 to try to protect yourself and follow the, you know, the teachings of the Holy Quran. And by the time we start doing it, 
you know it helps us and uh, you know of course it protects us from uh, the from, from satan and if we follow the footsteps of satan all those activities and temptations you know that make us away uh, from god almighty so we have covered uh, this topic in detail of course it is our fundamental duty to follow the 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 commandments of god almighty and of course when by the time we're following it god blesses us and indeed you must have heard to all of our listeners that hijab is not forced it is their choice and that's what they are doing it thank you very much for listening us today please join us back in next day assalamu alaikum